Haiti on Monday night. I had a smooth flight there. Y'all know I don't exactly enjoy flying. I do not let my fears dictate what I do. I fly often, though I abhor it. But coming back Sunday night, there were storms between Atlanta and Louisville. It turns out there were storms that spawned tornadoes. Obviously, we didn't fly through a tornado, but it was the same storms. One hit Atlanta, one hit Alabama. There were some major storms in Tennessee. And so the small plane that we were on was, it spun around about 10 times. It went upside down, or at least it felt that way. And I was sitting there, and the attendant in the providence of God was sitting in a jump seat next to me. And this attendant had the worst body language. Um, He was looking out the window as if he was as helpless and hopeless as I was. And, And I was terrified now is that sin of course it's sin it's not trusting the lord we're like the man in mark 10 who says lord i believe or mark 9 lord i believe but help my unbelief um and and yes it is sin it's sin to to be that kind of uh fearful and, and anxious so even your pastor needs the gospel every day correct i needed the gospel even on that plane thankfully we landed very safely uh, but when I got home, I was intrigued. I said, you know, the, these flight attendants, that, that has to be one of the most dangerous jobs in the world. And these pilots, I mean, these guys are just in treacherous waters at all times. This, these have to be the most dangerous jobs. And so I went online, and I found a very interesting article written by a guy named David Pegg, the 25 most dangerous jobs in the world. Now, some of those... Dangerous jobs were quite surprising to me on this list. For instance, a, sweet, a, a street sweeper. That's a dangerous job. Uh, especially in certain parts of the world where there's, the lighting is not good, there's a high mortality rate among street sweepers. I would not have known that. How about courier carriers or pizza delivery people and, and newspaper, especially in other parts of the world where they often get robbed at gunpoint. Farmers and ranchers is one of the 25 most dangerous jobs in the world. Mechanics, taxi cab drivers, lumberjacks, and sanitation workers. All of those made the list. That was very surprising to me. But some of the jobs that I saw were not surprising. For instance, bush pilots. If you've ever been in the bush, and I have been in the bush, you see these little planes, these little propeller planes, and they... They fly these things in sometimes weather that is not uh, the best thing for these planes. So bush pilots, are that's a very dangerous position. How about miners? Miners, that's a very dangerous job. Search and rescue, that obviously is a very dangerous job. Land mine removers. <laughs> now, who, I wonder, you've never asked a kid, what do you want to do when you grow up? You, I want to be a landmine remover. Praise God, though, that he raises up all kinds of different people with different talents, right? Police officers, one of the most 25 most dangerous jobs. Astronauts, of course. Um, bodyguards and armored car drivers. It's one of the 25 most dangerous jobs in the world. Stuntmen. It's one of the 25 most dangerous jobs in the world. Linemen. We have 
uh, Wayne is a lineman, and I think Jeff is, is training to be a lineman. And I did not realize how dangerous that was, but it made number 18 on the list. Firefighters, mountain guides, and get this, alligator wrestlers. And lion tamers. Different callings, different gifts. And so airline attendants and commercial pilots did not make the list. The bush pilots did, but not the commercial. But actually, if I could offer you the most dangerous job of all time, it's not on this list. It was the high priest in Israel. Absolutely the most dangerous job in the history of the world. <coughs> Excuse me. It's dangerous for you to listen tonight. His job was on the line. His life, rather, was on the line every time he went into the tabernacle. And it was largely why he had to be outfitted just right. Now, as we've seen... The high priest was going into the presence of God, and he had to be clothed properly. So he had to have a, an ephod with the names of the 12 tribes on his shoulders. What is that conveying? He is representing the people of God. The wages of sin is death, and he is coming to offer a sacrifice of atonement for these people. He is bearing the weight of their sin on his shoulders he also had to have the, the breast piece of decision that also had the 12 names of the people of God where it was born on his heart. And so it's not just a burden he, he wears. It's something he delights in for the sake of God's people. But he also had to wear a robe. And that brings us to verse 31 tonight in chapter 28. Notice he says, You shall make the robe... Of the ephod, all of blue. It shall have an opening for the head in the middle of it with a woven binding around the opening. Like the opening in a garment so that it may not tear. On its hem, you shall make pomegranates of blue and purple and scarlet yarns around its hem. With bells of gold between them. A golden bell and a pomegranate. A golden bell and a pomegranate. Around the hem of the robe. And it shall be on Aaron when he ministers. And its sound shall be heard when he goes into the holy place before the Lord. We'll talk more about this bell later on. And when he comes out so that he does not die. And so the same colors for the robes, blue, purple, and scarlet, were used for the, the entrance curtain and the curtain that separated the Holy of Holies and the Most Holy Place. Again, he is representing all that the tabernacle communicates and conveys. It was also a seamless robe, and it went under the ephod and hung down to at least the knees. And the hymn, notice, was decorated with Eden-like imagery. 
Now, why is Moses communicating this? Why has God instructed this? Because, again, the tabernacle is a symbol that God has not done with sinful humanity. And what has been lost by the fall, where we were cast out of the Garden of Eden, is going to be restored, at least topologically, through the tabernacle. It certainly points beyond itself forward as well, not just backwards to the Garden of Eden. It points forward to a new heavens and a new earth. All right? Anytime you read this language of fruit, the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit is the new creation, it's new creation language. Um, it is the dawn of the new age into this present broken age. Well, so you see this Eden like imagery here. And then the high priest outfit was completed. With a turban. Notice verse 36. You shall make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it like the engraving of a signet. Holy to the Lord. And so you got this plate. And so the plate is to, it, it shall fasten on the turban by a cord of blue. Verse 37. It shall be on the front of the turban. It shall be on Aaron's forehead. And Aaron, note this, very important. Who is Aaron? He is the high priest. He's the great high priest, right? He shall bear any guilt from the holy things that the people of Israel consecrate as their holy gifts. It shall regularly be on his forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord. And so the most crucial aspect of the turban that he's to wear on his head was this gold plate that was fixed to the front and rested on the high priest's forehead, and that gold plate had engraved on it, holy to the Lord. And we just need to continue to note the flow of these chapters. You see them, uh, this flow over and over again. You'll see it in Leviticus. You'll see it in Numbers, even in Deuteronomy. The sins of the people was imputed to the priest, who then transferred the guilt to these animals, these sacrifices, these sacrifices were, these were put to death. These animals died. And so death and sin reaches its dead end in these substitutes, okay? Now, again, what is the Bible doing? It's preparing us for something greater. Now, underneath these clothes, the high priest wore a tunic, kind of a long sleeve garment that extended to the ground. Notice verse 39. You shall weave the coat in checker work of fine linen. You shall make a turban of fine linen, and you shall make a sash embroidered with needlework. For Aaron's sons, now this is just the priest. These aren't the high priests. You shall make coats and sashes and caps. You shall make them for glory and beauty. Again, they are wearing in these garments something of, the, of, of what... It communicates the nature of God, glory and beauty and holiness. And you shall put them on Aaron, your brother, and on his sons with him, and shall anoint them and ordain them and consecrate them that they may serve me as priest. So what the other priests wore was, was similar to the high priest garments, but it wasn't as complex. The, the, the high priest wore something more sophisticated and the reason for that is they didn't represent the entire people of God like the great high priest would. 
The high priest would come, and he's, in, he's representing the entire people of God. And so they didn't wear these crowns that said, Holy to the Lord, okay? That's the difference. Nor did they wear all the extra garments that the high priest wore. But the tunic underneath here was identical. And so the Lord's final instructions concern, get this, their undergarments, which is essentially like long boxer shorts, um, which were to be worn by all the priests, not just the high priest. Notice in verse 42. You shall make for them linen undergarments to cover their naked flesh. They shall reach from the hips to the thighs. They shall be on Aaron and on his sons when they go into the tent of meeting or when they come near the altar to minister in the holy place. Notice, lest they bear guilt and die. This shall be a statute forever for him and for his offspring after him. Now, the purpose of these undergarments was modesty. Unlike all the, 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 the priests of these pagan religions who would oftentimes be undressed completely, God's priests were to, to come into his presence dressed very modestly. And so, let's examine this section as a whole. When you look at Exodus 28, we, we've made, I think, three sermons out of Exodus 28. We're finally out of the section on the priest's garments. But it's easy to lose the forest for the trees. When you're going through a difficult time and you need to hear from God, it's rare that you open up Exodus chapter 28. Uh, this is every bit as much the Word of God as Romans 3 or any psalm that you might read. And yet, we recognize that different texts have different purposes. So let's not lose the forest for the trees. Let's talk about the significance of the priest's garments. For one thing, they were majestic. I found this quote from a letter called Aristeus. It was written two centuries before Christ came. Listen to what it says about how the Israelites felt about the high priest. And how the high priest would dress. This just gives you a perspective. 200 years before Christ. Their appearance makes one awestruck and dumbfounded. A man would think he had come out of this world into another one. I emphatically assert that every man who comes near the spectacle of what I have described will experience astonishment and amazement beyond words. His very being transformed by the hallowed arrangement of every single detail. So that gives you a perspective on what the people of God would have experienced and perceived when they saw the high priest in all of his regalia, described by Exodus as, as holy, glorious, and beautiful. Again, those attributes are God's attributes, correct? And so if you're going to come into the presence of God, you've got to be like God. You've got to be as holy and beautiful as God is. You can't come into his presence. And that's what those garments represented. Of course, we have seen that the high priest regalia and garments was not because Moses or the people or God himself was ostentatious. Um, these, these garments conveyed something. Um, and this was particularly important when the high priest atoned for sins. Look again at verse 38. He says, 
It shall be on Aaron's forehead, and Aaron shall bear any guilt from the holy things that the people of Israel consecrate as their holy gifts. And so the high priest entered the Holy of Holies to bear the guilt for Israel's sins. And when the people of God sinned, they, they brought their holy gifts um, to the tabernacle. And then the, the high priest would present them to the Lord. And the Lord would only accept them on the basis of a sacrifice. And that sacrifice had to be accepted and it had to be offered by the high priest. And hence the importance here of the high priest headband. It established, holiest of the Lord, that the Lord himself is holy. And so it assured that these sacrifices uh, would be accepted because the priest himself was being conveyed as holy. <clears throat> In other words, their salvation depended on the righteousness stamped on the high priest's forehead. It's pretty remarkable. You know, we... we, we tend to fail to understand how dangerous the job of the high priest was. You, you just think about the fact that when Moses first met Yahweh, the burning bush, he had to take off his, his shoes because he was standing in holy ground. Remember the night of the Exodus. In order to survive the angel of death... They had to sacrifice a lamb for every home and smear the doorpost with the blood. Because in every home that night, there was going to be death. The death rate was the same in Israel as it was in Egypt. That night, every home had death. The question was, was it the firstborn son or was it a lamb? And then you remember when they first come to Mount Sinai, we saw this in Exodus chapter, what, 19, they, they couldn't even touch the mountain. They couldn't even approach the mountain because of the holiness of God. The only person who was allowed to approach the Lord was the mediator. And only if he was dressed in holiness and righteousness. Listen to Psalm 132, verse 9. Let your priest be clothed with righteousness and let your saints shout for joy. And so... The priest is clothed with righteousness. That's what these garments convey, the righteousness that would allow you to come into the presence of God. And so that clothing represented that. And that's why the high priest had the most dangerous job in the world, most dangerous job in the history of the world. In fact, his life was on the line every time he served in the tabernacle. Again, um, even his garments warned him. Notice verse 35 again. He's talking about this golden bell that, that is around the hem of the robe. It shall be on Aaron when he ministers, and its sound shall be heard when he goes into the holy place before the Lord. Now, what in the world is a bell on the hem of the garment for? Well, there's been a lot of ink spilled on this. In some ways, these bells were for the benefit of of the priest and the people of God. Because as the high priest did his work behind the curtains, those bells allowed the people to know he's still alive. You can still hear the bells jingling behind the curtain. But more importantly, he wore the bells for God. The bells announced that, again, you were coming into the presence of royalty. 
You don't just approach God. You have to announce your approach. That was how you came into the presence of an ancient Near Eastern king. And so those bells announced you were coming into the presence of royalty. But the bells also, now this is anthropomorphic, they, the bells let God know that it was a priest, the high priest coming into his presence and not just anyone else. If it had been anyone else, the wrath of God would have fallen. Only the mediator can come into the presence of God. Of course, that's symbolic because God is omniscient. God is all-knowing. God is everywhere. God is the God who sees everything. So ultimately, those bells were for the benefit of the people. They were symbolic. It was an audible reminder that sinners cannot come into the presence of God without a mediator. But another warning comes in verse 43. Notice, he says, And they shall be on Aaron and on his sons when they go into the tent of meeting or when they come near the altar to minister in the holy place, lest they bear guilt and die. Again, we are reminded how dangerous it is to come into God's presence. You know, one of the real issues you hear often is how can a loving God allow someone to go to hell? That's the, that's the dilemma of this present age. How can a loving God allow someone to go into hell or go to hell? But real, the dilemma of Scripture is how can a holy God, you know, allow a sinner to go to heaven? Because he is dangerous. He's dangerous, but not because he's mean. He's dangerous because he's holy and he's righteous. And we... Or not, And so you see these warnings here in verse 43. So, so, so dangerous is God that if the priest came in to his presence with the wrong kind of underwear, he would be destroyed. It's quite remarkable. Uh, but the same is true of the nation as a whole. Israel's salvation depended on whether or not God accepted their priest. And I want us to close here by turning over to Zechariah chapter 3. It's a very important passage. Uh, it's a passage that's so important, even R.C. Sproul wrote a children's book about this passage. It's the third to last book of the Old Testament. Zechariah chapter 3. We know Zechariah was written after the people of God returned from Babylonian captivity. Remember that? And he's writing somewhere around 520, 515 B.C. at this point. And notice in chapter 3, verse 1, then he showed me Joshua, by the way, that is a Hebrew name, whose Greek equivalent is what? Jesus. He showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. Now, notice verse 3. Now, Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. Of course, when you think about Exodus 28, it brings a new perspective to this passage, doesn't it? Because the garments the high priest wore mattered. Those garments represented holiness and righteousness. And so the garments he has on are filthy garments. 
So that creates a real dilemma for Joshua and for the people of God. This is a hopeless situation for Joshua, a hopeless situation for the people of God. But that's not the end of the story. Notice verse 4. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you. And I will clothe you with pure vestments. Verse 5, and I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. Remember the significance of the turban? On that turban declared the words, holy to the Lord. So what's happened is that not only the people of God, but the priests themselves have been defiled. As evidenced by these filthy garments. All right? But I want you to notice verse 8 and 9. It says, Now hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. In other words, what is a signpost? A signpost is not the ultimate reality, is it? It's pointing us to something that's greater. It's like an index finger. An index finger is not the point you're making when you point at something. The index finger is a sign pointing to something that you want to be drawn attention to. Now notice he says, For behold, he says, Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. Now what's interesting about that? I will bring my servant the branch. Now, if you know Jeremiah, you know that the branch is a branch from David. He's referring to a, a king who will come from David. Now, what's interesting about this is that he's writing in a time when there's no king. There's no king. The king has been cut off. It's called a stump in, in Isaiah 11, the stump of Jesse. And God is saying, I am, I am going to fulfill my purposes for God's people uh, through the Davidic king. And so this is a branch. And so Joshua, dressed in these filthy robes, is a sign that points to this branch, this servant, who will come. And for behold, on the stone that I've set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes... I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. And so how is God going to transfer this filthy clothing that represents the sins of the people and give them new clothing which represents righteousness? He says it's going to happen in a single day and it will come through a branch. Uh, now, what is a branch? It is a, it is a tree. It, it, you know, in fact, Jesus himself said the kingdom is like a mustard tree that grows into a great tree. It is, it is garden-like imagery. This is new creation imagery. So, how is this going to be? Well, we know how this is going to be. It comes 
through a branch. It comes through one from the line of David. I want you to turn over to John 19. It's the last passage we'll turn to tonight. We're just going to look at one verse. We know this being Passion Week, that John 19 is the account of Christ's death. And I want you to notice something in verse 23. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus. Now, what has already occurred? He has, he has been delivered over. They took his garments and divided them into four parts. One part for the soldier. Now, when John is describing something, he's not describing it just to, to scratch our historical itch. Notice how he describes his garments. The tunic was seamless. The tunic was seamless. So lots coming on. Woven in one piece from top to bottom. Jesus is dressed like the high priest. So Jesus on the cross is functioning as the people of God's great high priest. But unlike the high priest in Israel who would sacrifice an animal and had to do it daily, he is the sacrifice for atonement for sins. He's bearing the burden of sins for God's people on his shoulders. He carries our burdens close to his heart. You see how all of these aspects of the garment come together. He represents us before God. He is the substitute. And now having made atonement, he is resurrected from the grave. He ascends to, to heaven with our names on his shoulders and our names written on his heart. G. Campbell Morgan, speaking of the ascension of Christ, said this, he was the first man to enter into the perfect light of heaven in the right of his own holiness. I love that. When we come into heaven, we're not coming in the right of our holiness. We're coming in the right of the holiness of another. Heaven had before received such a man, had never before received such a man. On that ascension day, there came into heaven a man who asked for no mercy. Pure, spotless, victorious, he came into the light of heaven and caused no shadow there. Indeed, Jesus, in his office as the great high priest, faced the most dangerous vocation of all, not only offering the atoning sacrifice for sin, but being himself that atoning sacrifice. And now... That our high priest has finished his work. He has gone, Hebrews says, as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a great high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, Hebrews 6. And so this passage again reminds us, Exodus 28, that even in the garments that the, that the high priest wore, God is holy. And we need a substitute. Now, what does that do for us? Does it allow you to say, well, Christ has 
paid for my sins. I can live cavalierly. Uh, I, can, I can commit any sin I want because it's forgiven. No. If that is your position, you're not saved. It's that simple. If that is your perspective on the gospel, you have an intellectual understanding of the gospel, but you're not saved. Because when you are united to Christ by faith, the, the, the righteousness of Christ, the holiness of Christ begins to be worked in you. And one of the evidences that you've been united to him is that there is now this increasing desire for righteousness. An increasing desire for holiness. That is the mark of a Christian who has been touched, who's been saved by our great high priest. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this passage. We thank you that we do have a great high priest who functioned as our high priest on the cross, on the altar. The veil was rent to the Holy of Holies on that day because by his all-sufficient sacrifice, he made us fit not just to come into the courtyard, but into the Holy of Holies. And now we, as believers who have been united to Christ, we are deemed temples of Christ, sanctuaries of Christ, where he dwells by his spirit. Thank you for our high priest. And we pray, Lord, that these texts would continue to stir our affections towards him, that we may love him more, and that that love may inform how we interact with one another and how we interact with the lost that we meet in the world. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.